Happy Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. He is risen indeed. This Easter is certainly different from other Easter's we've experienced and celebrated, but Jesus is still alive and the tomb is still empty. There was a father teaching his son how to drive and they were driving on a backcountry road when out of the middle of nowhere a rabbit raced across the road and the son being inexperienced slammed on the brakes almost injuring him and his father. And his father said, son, what are you doing? The boy said, dad, I almost killed the Easter bunny and ruined Easter. The dad looked at the son and in a reassuring voice he said, son, you missed him by a hair. Well, the coronavirus certainly has not ruined Easter. It's a little different but it hasn't canceled Easter. Jesus is still alive, and that's why we celebrate today. In fact, this is the reason Jesus came. At Christmas time, we often talk about Jesus taking on flesh and blood and becoming one of us and entering into our world so that he knows what it means to understand the struggle and the hardships and the trials and the tribulations that we face. It was for this very reason that Jesus came, and on Good Friday, he died for our sins, and on Easter Sunday, he rose from the dead, and his work had been completed but he understands what it means to be a human and to be suffering like one of us. If you remember in John chapter 11, Lazarus, his best friend, had died. And before Jesus called Lazarus forth from the tomb, the Bible says that he stood outside of the tomb and Jesus wept. Why did he weep? He wept because he understood this was not the way the world was supposed to be. But because of sin, the world is now under a curse, and death is a part of this world that we live in. And so Jesus, looking at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, understood that this was not the world as his father had intended it to be. But ever since Genesis chapter 3, we've been under this curse. But Jesus came and lived among us, and now he knows what it means to be acquainted with our sorrows. In fact, that's what we read in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3. It says this, He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was a man of sorrows and was acquainted with grief because he lived this human experience that we live. He understands what it means to walk on planet Earth. And so today we come and to celebrate. Jorgen Moltmann said a summary of human history, past, present, and future is this. God weeps with us so that we might someday laugh with him. We wept with Jesus on Good Friday, and on Easter Sunday, we really laugh with him. And that's the story of history. That's the story of where history is going. We weep now, but at the end of time, we will be laughing with him. Someone once said, Christmas is the promise, but Easter is the proof. And so now we have the proof of God's love for us and his concern for us and the ways that he has come into our world to take care of us and to take on his grief and our grief in these dark times. We really have hope because of the resurrection. Paul encourages us in our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that because of Jesus' resurrection, those belonging to him will be resurrected as well. And so we're going to wrap up our study of 1 Corinthians this morning. And so if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, grab a Bible starting in verse 35. Paul says this, But someone will ask, How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You know, off and on throughout the book of Corinthians, Paul was addressing questions and controversies and things that the Corinthians wrote to him about, things that they didn't quite understand. And so now in this section, Paul seems to be addressing a question that the Corinthians had before. And they wondered how the dead were going to be raised and what kind of body they were going to have when they come. They were kind of wanting to know the mechanics of the resurrection. 
And so Paul says in this section of Corinthians, I'm going to tell you how this works. And so we're going to walk through the mechanics. And then at the end of the chapter, Paul's going to give us some great hope and encouragement as we celebrate Easter. In verse 36, Paul says, You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Paul's using the word foolish person or a fool in the classic Old Testament sense. It was a person who failed to take God into account. It was a person who had used doubt as a reason for disbelief. Because I can't cross all the T's and dot all the I's, then I'm not going to believe in God. And so a fool in the Old Testament sense wasn't someone who was an atheist, but it was someone who allowed the circumstances of life, whether it was doubt or difficulties, to disbelieve a wholehearted faith in God. And so Paul says to these Corinthians, you foolish person, he says, what you sow, in verse 36, does not come to life unless it dies. This is a hard fact of life, but it is a fact of life, that the only way a seed will grow into something beautiful, perhaps as a flower, something life's uh, nourishing, such as a uh, vegetables, is because the seed goes in the ground first, and then it dies. And so Paul says that the seed goes in, and when the seed goes into the ground, what happens to it is it changes. And so he goes on, he says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. Paul says, Corinthians, and he tells us as well, what you put into the ground is not what will come out of the ground. The body that goes in is different than the body that is going to come out. The body is not just some resuscitated body like Lazarus was, but the body that comes out is going to be totally different. It's certainly not the body that's going to be in the resurrection. And so if the body placed in the ground is not the body that's going to be raised, just what kind of body is it going to be? And so Paul uses the term of a seed. You put the seed into the ground, but what comes forth from the ground is something totally different than the seed that you put in. And so Paul goes on and he says, but God gives it a body as he chooses and to each kind of seed its own body. Now Paul goes on and he talks about that there's different kinds of flesh and different kinds of bodies. He says, for all flesh is not the same in verse 39, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Paul's just saying, look, you look around and you understand that different kinds of creatures and different kinds of beings have different kinds of flesh and different kinds of bodies. And then he says there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For stars differ from star in glory. And so Paul uses these bodies and these different kinds of uh, elements and these different kinds of uh, parts of creation to lead us into verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. He says it's going to be uh, different. It's going to be somehow be, be much better. And so Paul uses the word glory over and over and over. And he says that what's going to happen, come out of the grave, is going to have glory. There's going to be something about it. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, as we read through um, verses 20 to 21, Paul says this, but our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. 
So Paul was writing in Philippians as well that when our bodies are changed, we are going to have this glorious body. By who? By the power of God. And so now Paul goes in, he talks about this resurrection of the dead, and he talks about how it's going to be different, and he has some wording in this section that's important not to miss as we walk through this um, emphasis in 1 Corinthians. So what he says is in 1 Corinthians 44, it's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. Paul has two emphasis in this section. The first is this, that there's a continuity between earthly and heavenly existence because he uses the term body in both cases. He says it's a natural body and it's a spiritual body, which means we have this continual existence. Remember, we are created as embodied beings. We are created as spirit and we are created as body working together. And that's what makes us human. Death is a separation of the spirit from the body. And so Paul says that because he uses that term soma or body for both the spiritual and the natural, it means there's the, a continuity of our life. But there's also a discontinuity when he uses the term natural and spiritual. But look what he says in verse 44. If there's a natural body, there's going to be a spiritual body. Thus it is written, he said, the first Adam became a living being and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And then he has all of these contrasts. He says it's in verse 42, it's sown perishable, it's raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. And so Paul wants to encourage the Corinthians, and he encourages us as well, that we're going to have this continuity of life, but at the general resurrection, it's going to be so much better. Our bodies are going to be so different. It's going to be so glorious, and that was the hope that he was giving to the Corinthians. Paul also reminds us that we are born in Adam. He says in verse 45, the first Adam became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. That's us. So we are born human. We are of the dust. And because of Adam's transgression, there's this corporate personality that we all experience physical death because we are human. And so he says, as was the man of dust, so we are. But look what he says. As is the man of heaven, so also we are those who are of heaven. Just as we've been born in the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And so Paul says to us, believers, you are born human. You were born part of Adam's race. You were born a mortal with a mortality. The mortality rate of humans is 100%. We all die because we are born in the image of Adam. But when we are reborn in the image of Jesus, we will all be resurrected and have this new life and these new bodies. And so Paul then gives us some realities of the resurrection. And when he gives us these realities of the resurrection, these are the things that we can grasp onto and the hope that will give us for today in this kind of strange time that we live in. I've been using that word weird all the time. Everything's just weird. You can't get close to people. You can't hug people. You're walking on the sidewalk and you have to go way around each other. And you can't see your loved ones. And online just isn't the same as it is in person. And there's a tension 
that Paul gives us between the now and the not yet. And we have to rightly divide this tension to have a, a right theology of the resurrection or we will be very frustrated in this life. And so Paul gives us some realities of the resurrection. We sow, which is now, and then we will have a harvest, which is then. We are in the image of Adam now, then we will bear the image of Jesus. And so Paul says that when we are in Christ, our resurrection is tied to Jesus' resurrection. And so I want to give you five resurrection realities that we find in this passage of 1 Corinthians. Th those five resurrection realities that will encourage us and give us hope for the now and also hope for the future. So here's resurrection reality number one. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Look what Paul says in Verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. There is something that has to be different and changed about us for to enter into this eternal kingdom. We enter into the kingdom of Christ now when we confess him as our Savior, baptized into Christ. But Paul's talking about this future event, this future resurrection, this future hope that we have. And what he's saying is this, that this flesh and blood has to be changed. It has to be different. He said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed for this imperishable or this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. This was a sign that I had seen in a nursery years ago. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. But it's true. And Paul says that there is a not yet fact about the resurrection. We haven't been changed yet. We haven't put on the immortal. We haven't put on the imperishable. We are in these very frail and perishable bodies. And we understand that it is very frail. It takes a microscopic virus that we can't see. And it can do great damage to these frail and weak bodies. And so we need these new bodies for the coming kingdom. We need these new bodies for the coming of this great resurrection when we're glorified. And Paul wanted his readers to understand that when Jesus returns, there's hope for those who have died and also for those who are still alive. Those who have died prior to the end will be raised up with a spiritual body, and those who are alive at the end will experience this great transformation. He said, well, we'll all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And so there's this hope that we all won't die because if we're alive when Jesus returns, but we're all going to be changed. Paul earlier in chapter 15 wanted to encourage the Corinthians that those who have fallen asleep, if Christ hadn't risen from the dead, they would have no hope. But because Christ rose from the dead, we do have hope. And so the resurrection reality is this, that we will all be changed. If I die before Jesus comes, I still have hope because I'll be resurrected from the dead and I will change. This verse makes it certain that Paul links the resurrection of the saints with the return of Jesus, this great day of the Lord. Another resurrection reality that Paul gives us is in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, 
Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. We have to get the wording right with this verse. In verse 53, he says that the perishable body is going to put on the imperishable. Well, when is that? That's when Jesus returns. And in verse 54, Paul says, when that happens, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when Jesus returns, when that happens, then the saying will come to pass. Death is swallowed up in victory. This is a not yet fact of the resurrection. Death will be swallowed up in victory. And because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, he has inaugurated this process of resurrection. But this is still the not yet. See that little word when at the beginning of verse 54? When, at the last trumpet, when we are raised, then this will happen. Then death will be swallowed up in victory. This is the only place in the New Testament where Paul cites an Old Testament prophecy that has yet to be fulfilled. He's reading from Isaiah Chapter 25, verse 8, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from their faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Why is it important to understand this? It's because we get frustrated with death. And we get tired. We get tired of hearing about death on the news. Tired of going to funerals. Tired of worrying when someone is sick, if they're going to get better. We get frustrated sometimes with our own mortality. Paul says, death has been conquered, but it will be swallowed up in victory when Jesus returns. And so we live in this not yet time when death still has a free reign, when death still conquers every human being that is alive. And he says, so death will be swallowed up in victory. Verse 55, he says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now remember at the beginning of verse 54, Paul used the word when. When Jesus comes, when the trumpet call, when the dead are raised, then death will be swallowed up in victory. That time is it now. And he says, when that happens, death will be powerless. It will have no victory. Then we can ask, Death, where is your sting? This is a taunt against death. Paul is personifying death. And what he's saying is, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And so what he's saying is, when that time happens, when that time comes, but it's not there yet. So what do we know? We know death stings now. It really does. Death has a sting about it in the here and the now. Every time we go to a funeral, every tear that we cry, we know those salty tears sting our eyes. We know that death is hard and grief is hard. We know all of those things. And death stings now. Every funeral we go to, it stings. This is a not yet. And so as we celebrate Easter and as we celebrate the resurrection, we don't live in some fairy tale. We don't live in some place of, uh, that's not real. But the reality is that death stings. And we can say, death stings. We, we hate this. We don't like it because it's the not yet. That's when death will no longer have a sting. Paul points out that death's current victory is only temporary. That when Jesus returns, it will finally give way to victory. And he says, the power of the sin is the law. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Why is the power of sin the law? Because the law tells us the commands of God, what he expects from us and what he wants us to do. 
and we have broken those commands. And when we break those commands, we are now lawbreakers, and we deserve death. And we deserve the place that only God can do for us with grace. And so we come. And we say, Lord, here I am. So we have this sting of death now. Resurrection reality number four is this. Victory comes through Jesus. Oh, look at what he says. But thanks be to God, verse 57, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the victory through Jesus. That's the victory that we have. It's that death stings now. That death hasn't been swallowed up in victory now. But right now we have the victory in Jesus because of Jesus' work on the cross, my life was hidden with him. My sins are forgiven. And now I have the victory because of Jesus. We sing that song, Victory in Jesus. And that victory was purchased for me on the cross. And it was vindicated as he rose again from the dead. And so Paul says the victory truly is in Jesus. Fifth resurrection reality is this. That our labor for the Lord is not in vain. Look what Paul says. He says... In verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the now. Death swallowed up in victory is then. The sting of death is now. And so Paul wants to encourage us in verse 58 that our labor for the Lord is not in vain. Remember, he has told the Corinthians already, hold on to the gospel. It's where you take in your stand. It's, it's where you are, have that firm place to stand. And so for the Apostle Paul, the resurrection means that living for Christ is never meaningless. And so he says that. He says that we have this, uh, our labor for the Lord is not in vain. Do you remember where you've heard that term before? In Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 3, the writer of Ecclesiastes wants to know why life is meaningless. And he asked this question, what does a man gain from all the toil for which he toils under the sun? Verse 58 is probably the most important verse for us today as we look at the light of the resurrection. We can be discouraged and we can say, Lord, I'm a believer. I follow Jesus. I love Jesus. So why is this happening to me? Lord, I gave my life to you, and so now these difficult things are happening. And Paul, in verse 58, wants to say, the things that you do for the Lord are not in vain. Not vanity like the writer of Ecclesiastes. This is a big problem for the writer of Ecclesiastes. A big problem for the writer of Ecclesiastes was death. Death, according to the writer of Ecclesiastes, robs everything of its significance or its gain or profit. So in other words, everything that we do in life, whether we acquire land, money, houses, whatever it is, death gets rid of all that, so there is no gain. Life under the sun, remember, has no value, no gain. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes was very pessimistic, was very somber, because he looked at life and said, what do we get from all this? No matter what we do, we can seek wisdom, we can chase pleasure, we can pursue fame, we can work for wealth it ultimately results in no gain. Death means whatever we achieve in this life, life is lost to us forever. Any gain is short-term. But that's the writer of Ecclesiastes. 
But this is where the gospel provides us with an entirely different perspective. Because of the coming of Jesus, we know what will happen after death. You see, the writer of Ecclesiastes didn't know what was going to happen after death. But we as believers in Jesus, we know what's going to happen after death. Jesus arose from the dead again, and when we are in him, whatever happened to him is going to happen to us. And so we also will be raised from the dead. Jesus faced death, and God raised him from the dead. We know that in Christ, death is not the end. It's a gateway to eternal life for all those who trust in Jesus. The New Testament knows what the writer of Ecclesiastes did not know, that whatever might happen in this life, no matter how insecure, no matter how temporal our fate might be, nothing can change our eternal home in Jesus. That's why the writer of Ecclesiastes despaired. He didn't know what we know, that when we are in Christ, we have the hope of resurrection. We have the hope of, of eternal life when, in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus forever. This changes things in a profound way. In Ecclesiastes, this lack of gain means that life is vanity. It's like a chasing after the wind. Our actions are rendered almost meaningless because we never really enjoy the fruits of anything that we do. But for the Apostle Paul, the resurrection means that living for Christ is never meaningless. Living for Christ is never meaningless. It's never a chasing of the wind. It's never vain. It's never without effect. In fact, that's what he says in verse 58. Therefore, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's almost as if Paul says to the writer of Ecclesiastes, I want to tell you that in the Lord it's never in vain. Paul encourages us as believers who live in a world marked by death not to fret, but to continue to live in the light and the hope that Jesus Christ offers. It's easy for us to misunderstand the significance of this. And if you don't remember any other verses, I want you to remember verse 58, especially for this moment that we find ourselves in in life with the pandemic and economy and uncertainty. We may throw up our hands and we may say, Lord, it's not worth it. Why bother? Paul says, in the Lord, listen, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. It's not meaningless. Sometimes we forget that belonging to Christ does not guarantee comfort or happiness. Sometimes Christians want to promise us a victorious, pain-free life. But the New Testament promise is not that everything is going to be easy in this life. Sometimes life will be extremely painful. You cannot have an honest reading of the New Testament and not understand that Christians suffered. Paul himself is a prime example of Christians who suffer. In Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of faith, there are Christians who suffer. And in verse 58, Paul reminds us that we're not promised no pain in this life. We're not promised uh, no heartache in this life or no troubles or no trials. That's not what we have been promised. And if we misunderstand the now and the not yet of the resurrection, we can become very discouraged and perhaps even angry with God. We can say things like, Lord, you said that death wasn't going to sting, so why am I so hurting at the loss of my loved one? 
it's because he didn't tell us it wasn't going to sting today. He says it's not going to sting in the future when he comes back. Christians are not exempt from God's judgment of this fallen world. We live in a world that is under the curse. But when Jesus returns, that curse is lifted and everything is made new again. In Christ, we see life beyond death. We see life in the next world because Christ has been raised. Our actions and our service to the Lord will result in glory on the day that he visits us. You may be struggling today, maybe really struggling over these last few weeks. And we just want to throw up our hands and we want to say, Lord, why bother? Why do what I'm doing? Look at what's happening. And Paul says, in the Lord, your labor, the things that you do are not in vain. They're not meaningless. They're not a, they're not a chasing after the wind. When things are uncomfortable in this world, we need to remember this simple truth that Christians live as those who have hope because Christ's resurrection reveals God's future for us. Isn't that great news? Isn't that the good news that we need in this dark world? Isn't that the, the hope that we need right now? That because of Christ's resurrection, it reveals God's future for us. You see, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 about Jesus' resurrection, but he also ties that into that our resurrection. Jesus' resurrection happened 2,000 years ago. Ours hasn't happened yet. But because of Jesus' resurrection, he is revealed to us, and when we are in him, that's, what gonna, that's what's going to happen to us as well. We live in a world with the uncertainty and the terror of sin, and one day that will be wiped away. So Easter is God's future for us. That when we are in Christ, we will be raised again from the dead. When the scientist from the 1800s, Sir Michael Faraday, was dying, some journalists questioned him about his speculations for a life after death. Speculations, he said. I know nothing about speculations. I am resting on certainties. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and because he lives, I shall also live. That's our message of hope. That's the statement of hope. That's the statement of faith that we can make today. I know that because my Redeemer lives, and because he lives, I also will live. Easter is ultimately a triumphant story. But it didn't start out that way. It started with what looked like the worst possible defeat, Christ's death on the cross. And so on Good Friday, we remember that moment when Jesus died and his disciples were disillusioned and his disciples had lost all hope. Then comes Easter morning. And it reminds us that God's plans are not our plans. He uses difficulties and disappointments to accomplish some of his greatest work. God's plans are not our plans. And at this time in our history, at this moment in our lives, has challenged us with anything. It challenges us with where we really find our hope. Where do we find our hope in this reality where we are not in charge? We're hardly in charge of anything anymore. Can't even go to the grocery store and you're told how far to stand from people and you can only buy one carton of eggs and, and one pack of meat and you can't go out uh, in, into public gatherings anymore. We're not in charge of a whole lot anymore. 
And what that does is it shakes it down and it reminds us or challenges us, where do we find our hope when we're not in charge? Because most of our life, when we talk about comfort and normalcy, all that means is I'm in charge of my life. And this moment is very unnerving for us because we're not in charge. Probably find yourself getting frustrated at decisions, at TV, all that. Like, what are they doing? I know better. Why? Because I want to be in charge. And this moment in life reminds us that we're really not in charge. In the darkness, when we can't see him, we can still have hope. You see, Friday afternoon and Saturday until early on that first Easter morning, the disciples were living in darkness. They didn't have much hope. But God knew what he was doing. Behind the scenes, God knew that on that first Easter morning, Jesus was going to rise from the dead. You see, the disciples didn't know that, but God had it all in charge. And in those moments, they were discouraged and they were anxious and they were despondent. Don't we feel that today? We certainly do. You see, the disciples were in the now and the not yet. Friday and Saturday, Jesus was dead. That was the now, but Easter Sunday was the not yet. And we very much, too, find ourselves in that same place. We're in the now and we are in the not yet. We have the victory through Christ, though. That first Easter morning, the Gospels tell us that Mary arrived at the tomb, and she wept because Jesus was not there. She was going, expecting to find her Savior in the tomb, and she wept, and she talked to Jesus, who she thought was the gardener. She said, Sir, if you know where they put him, please tell me. She was upset because Jesus was not there. But you know, she should have been more upset if Jesus was there. If she showed up to that tomb expecting to see him and the women were going to anoint his body, if he was still there, they should have been far more sorrowful than the fact that the tomb was empty. In fact, we should still be weeping if he is still there, but he's not there. He's risen from the dead. When you go into the supermarket and see the empty shelves and see the aisles that are empty, it should remind us of the empty tomb. Because the fact that Jesus wasn't there means it was a rejoicing. I want to challenge you this week as you go to the store, and yes, the toilet paper aisle is still probably going to be empty, It's a rotating cycle sometimes of what aisle is empty. But if you see an empty shelf this week at the supermarket, I want it to remind you of the empty tomb. Oh, shelf is empty. So was the tomb. You see, how we look at things makes a difference. Mary was weeping because the tomb was empty, but she should have been rejoicing because the tomb was empty. We weep because the supermarket shelves are empty, but we rejoice because the tomb is empty. And it all reminds us that God is not in, that God is in control and we are not. Where does your hope come from at this Easter season? Listen, it is a difficult time. It's a hard time. I don't know anybody that's not a little anxious, maybe a little sad. We're all kind of feeling some grief. We're all feeling some anxiousness about the future. 
But this is the very reason Jesus came. This is why he lived among us, to be acquainted with our difficulties, acquainted with our sorrows. And it reminds us that we're not in control. And so Paul says in verse 58, do you remember that verse? That your labor is not in vain in the Lord. These moments are not in vain in the Lord. These moments we have hope because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this is certainly a different Easter. But God, even though it's different in our circumstances of today, it doesn't change the circumstances of 2,000 years ago that Jesus is alive. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in the gospel. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. That one day death will be swallowed up in victory. One day death won't sting. But Father, in these moments and in these days, when we do feel the sting of sin and of sorrow and of sadness, Father, would you encourage us to keep on keeping on, to keep doing the right thing, because in the Lord our labor is not in vain. Father, would you minister to each one as we celebrate Easter together, but separate of the hope and the encouragement that we fix our eyes not on this world, but on the world to come. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I hope you have a blessed Resurrection Sunday. Next week, we're going to begin a new series. And it's called Anxious for Nothing. It's going to be based on Philippians 4, 6 specifically, but the book of Philippians. And over and over, Paul tells us to rejoice. And so we're going to give you some great tools and some ways to handle anxiety and some worry. And Paul is so very practical. And so I'm really looking forward to this series to help us minister to us and walk through this time. Until then, have a great Resurrection Sunday. Remember Jesus is alive. Through him, we have the victory. And I know that my Redeemer lives. And because he lives, I have hope.